The following audio is from Shady Grove Presbyterian Church in Rockville, Maryland. Our mission is to follow Jesus Christ and labor for his kingdom both in our area and around the world. For more information about Shady Grove Presbyterian Church, please follow us on Facebook and visit shadygrovepca.org. As we do here every week at Shady Grove, we're going to be preaching from the Bible, and so you can go ahead and take yours out. Uh, a physical Bible or uh, the app, whatever it is you use to follow along. We're going to be in 1 Corinthians chapter 10, starting in verse 23. And uh, if you don't own a Bible, we have the blue paperback Bibles in the seat in, uh, in front of you or under you. And those are actually our gift to you, so we would encourage you to take those home and read it if you would like. We have some out in our lobby as well. Our text this morning chapter 10 through the beginning of verse 11, it closes out the Apostle Paul's three-chapter answer, which began in chapter 8, verse 1, to the question of whether or not members of the Corinthian church could eat meat that had been sacrificed to idols. And so Paul, for three chapters, has been answering this question. And as we finish now his answer to this question... What we're going to see is that for Paul, it wasn't really about idol meat. It was about living a life that was pleasing and glorifying to God. And so, such a way of life can only happen when we ourselves have been transformed by the love of Christ. And so I pray that this text humbles us as we sit under it, as we consider what it has to say, and we consider Paul's example of what it means for us to truly humble ourselves for the good of others and for God's glory. So, 1 Corinthians chapter 10, starting in verse 23, please give it your careful attention as this is God's word. All things are lawful, but not all things are helpful. All things are lawful, but not all things build up. Let no one seek his own good, but the good of his neighbor. Eat whatever is sold in the meat market without raising any question on the ground of conscience. For the earth is the Lord's and the fullness thereof. If one of the unbelievers invites you to dinner and you are disposed to go, eat whatever is set before you without raising any question on the ground of conscience. But if someone says to you, this has been offered in sacrifice, then do not eat it. For the sake of the one who informed you and for the sake of conscience. I do not mean your conscience, but his. For why should my liberty be determined by someone else's conscience? If I partake with thankfulness, why am I denounced because of that for which I give thanks? So whether you eat or drink or whatever you do, do all to the glory of God. Give no offense to Jews or Greeks or to the church of God, just as I try to please everyone in everything I do, not seeking my own advantage, but that of many that they may be saved. Be imitators of me as I am of Christ. Let's pray. Father, we thank you for the gift of your word, and we pray now that as we receive it, that you would humble us, grow us, teach us, and help us to see for our own lives what it means for us to follow Jesus, and like Paul, to be able to say to others, be imitators of me. We pray this now in Christ's name. Amen. When I became a Christian, 
just over about eight years ago, I immediately had a sense in which everything about my life was about to change. I knew deep down in my soul that my thoughts, my actions, my feelings were all subject to a new authority. My life was not my own. I'd been bought with a price, and so I was in submission to Christ. And while I knew that to be true, there were areas of my life where I didn't quite understand what that was supposed to look like. There were a few areas for me where this was especially true. The first was in my relationship to alcohol. Prior to my conversion, much of my social life and my entertainment revolved around excessive drinking. It's the life that I and many of my friends enjoyed, whether in our own homes or at parties or going out clubs in D.C. What did this mean now for me as a Christian? Was I supposed to give up drinking altogether? Was I supposed to stop going out with my friends and risk damaging my friendships with, with people who I loved? What, could my life resume as normal, as if nothing had changed, maybe in an effort to show people that Christianity wasn't as weird as they thought it was? I was confused, and I wanted an easy answer, but I found none. Another area of my life was entertainment, what I consumed. I started hearing these stories about people who had converted to Christianity and burned all their Harry Potter books and Lincoln Park CDs because that is, I guess, what it means to be pure and unstained from the world. And while that never seemed quite right to me, I also came to see that the shows I was watching that were saturated with nudity and sex they couldn't be pleasing to a holy God. And so again, I was looking for easy answers, but I found none. And of course, like most young men who are completely unable to relate to women, my new faith caused me to question what this new relationship with women was supposed to look like. Is dating appropriate or am I supposed to kiss it goodbye? Do I need to commit to marrying a woman on the first date? Can I still hug my female friends or do I need to learn this awkward art of the Christian side hug? You know, it's good to see you this morning, right? The young converts in Corinth had questions of their own they were wrestling with as well. These folks, you know, they were the young, they were the hip, cool church. They wore their skinny jeans and had their thick-rimmed glasses and drank their craft beer. They were on the cutting edge of culture and society, early adopters of all the latest tools and technology. And they, too, struggled with living their life in submission to Christ while still being present in the world and not pulling away from it. And while they struggled with many similar things that we do today, such as alcohol and entertainment, there was one issue that on first glance may seem completely foreign to us today, and that is the issue of food, specifically meat sacrificed to idols. It's one of the issues that they originally wrote to Paul about. They wanted his advice on, and so now Paul has been writing to them in response with advice. So in chapter 8, verse 1, Paul wrote, Now concerning food offered to idols... That's the introduction. And so now for three chapters, he's been answering their question, what should you do with food 
offered to idols. And you know what hit me this last week? I'm, I'm kind of sad to admit it took so long for this to hit me. Many of you, probably much more alert than I, have already been thinking this uh, for several weeks. And, you know, but this question came to my mind. Why didn't Paul just give them the easy answer? Right? I mean, the answer seems so obvious. Paul, can we eat, mac- eat meat sacrificed to idols? Answer, no. Next question. Right? I mean, one of the main lessons of the Old Testament, don't mess with idols. Don't mess with idols, right? Don't be near it. Don't be around it. Don't think about it. Don't mess with it. Don't be around idols. More than that, in the Jerusalem Council in Acts 15, when the apostles and the pastors, they got together and said, what are we going to do with all these new non-Jewish believers? What are we going to do with them? What, What can we tell them? This was one of the issues they ruled on. When the early church struggled with instructions to give to new converts, here's what they said. Acts chapter 15. For it has seemed good to the Holy Spirit and to us to lay on you no greater burden than these requirements. That you abstain from what has been sacrificed to idols and from blood and from what has been strangled and from sexual immorality. If you keep yourselves from these, you will do well. For what? Farewell. Okay? And that happens long before Paul even ends up in Corinth for the first time. So why didn't Paul just remind the Corinthian church of what had already been decided? Don't eat it. Because Paul knew that life is too complicated for a simple list of do's and don'ts that we can check off. And maturity Progressing in maturity in the Christian life is moving past a list of rules and we begin to see how the grace of God can transform our hearts for, so that any situation we find ourselves in, no matter what it is, we might know how to live, how to love, and how to obey like Jesus. And so what we've been seeing in Paul is this real gentleness and this ability to adapt his language and his tone to really get on their level and really help them and address the areas of their lives where they needed to grow. You see, idol meat was one of the hot button issues in Corinth. It was ground zero, if you will, for much of the conflict between Jewish and Gentile believers. And that's because this issue dramatized three much larger concerns. Number one, the problem of boundaries between the church and the culture. Number two, the strained relationships between different social groups in the community. Number three, the relationship between knowledge and love in the church. The situation was complicated by two facts. First, it was an accepted social practice to have meals in a temple or place of idol worship. And Pastor Charlie has kind of joked it was like having a banquet hall where all the parties were held. I mean, that was just what you did. Secondly, most if not all meat sold in the marketplace had been previously sacrificed to idols in some kind of pagan worship. So if you take notice of our text this morning in light of what's come before it, there's really two separate questions. The first question is, can we participate in idol feasts? And the second question is, well, can we eat meat that has been, that, you know, that's been bought in the marketplace if it's been previously sacrificed? There's kind of two questions that Paul's been dealing with. And the way that Paul goes about answering these questions is by using the opportunity to teach the Corinthian church about far more than idol meat. 
So he shows us how to live a life of grace that honors Jesus and draws people to him. So Paul began in chapter 8, basically saying, I'll tell you what you need to know. Technically, idols don't exist. Technically, there are no other gods. So yeah, in one sense, you're free to eat whatever you want. But please, please do not use this knowledge in a way that could harm another believer, in a way that could harm their conscience, that could cause a burden on them, because knowledge is nothing without love. So if you aren't using your knowledge to love others well, then this is no good to you. It's no good to you, because you'll be harming others and sinning against Christ. Paul continues in chapter 9, and he uses his own life as an example. He says, although I'm a pastor, although I'm an apostle, and I'm entitled to compensation from the church, I take no money from you. Because he didn't want anyone to accuse him of just being in it for the money, like all the philosophers of his day. And so he modeled for them in his own life an example, a life that had been transformed by grace, a a willingness to put other people's needs above his own. He had rights. He lays down his rights for others. And not just for those in the church, but also for all kinds of people outside the church. He continues at the end of chapter 9. We would be willing to sacrifice our preferences, our opinions, our rights to the point that we would endeavor to take on the burdens and needs of other people so that they might hear the gospel and be one to Jesus Christ. And then coming into chapter, chapter 10, here now is where he maybe most directly answers the question. For he says that we should abstain from participating in idol feasts because it it is a temptation to weaker believers. We should be willing to sacrifice our freedom, so abstain because you don't want to be a temptation to weaker believers, but also because it will put you in spiritual peril. Don't even entertain the thought of participating in false worship. How can you have communion with demons and, you know, with the Lord's table? That's the idea. Don't even participate in it because you're going to be lured away from the faith in ways that maybe you can't even see clearly right now. And so all of that, so far, from this one question, can we eat idle meat? So let's pause to press this in for a moment. (coughs) Following Jesus is much more than keeping a list of do's and don'ts. It's not less than that, but it is much more. Following Jesus, being imitators of Jesus, it means that we are in all things governed by his love and his faithfulness to us. Why didn't Paul just give the easy answer? Because life isn't easy. And rules and do's and don'ts don't have the ability to transform our hearts and our lives. I was recently reading a historian who said that the Bible is about to go extinct. It's no longer useful. It's irrelevant. Because it doesn't deal with all of the scientific and technological advancements of the 21st century. But that's pretty naive. It's an extremely naive view. Because it fails to take into account the actual content of the Bible. You notice in these chapters, it's not really about idol meat so far, is it? 
hasn't really been about idol meat. No, Paul's greater point is that we be governed by a rule of love and grace that seeks the good of others above our own, that sacrifices our comforts so that others might come to a saving trust in Jesus Christ. And that kind of life transformation will guide you no matter what situation you find yourself in, whether it's idol meat, entertainment, technology, whatever the case may be. How do you view what it means to follow Jesus? Do you think of it simply as a list of commands to follow, of boxes to check off? Perhaps suggestions for being a nicer, kinder, and more moral person. Friends, if, if that is all following Christ is to you, then may I suggest to you that's a very shallow and incomplete view of what it means to follow Jesus. When I was in college, I went to go see a Pink Floyd cover band. They played all the greatest hits, many of you know, but I would have been a fool to think that that was seeing the real thing. Have you wrestled with the real Jesus? Not the one that you like, not the one of your imagination, but the real Jesus. Because following Christ looks a lot more like life transformation, not slight life alteration. It's not a surface level experience, but it's where our affections and our emotions and our desires and our thoughts and our actions and the very reason we get up in the bed, out of bed in the morning, changes. Have you been transformed by the love of Christ? How great must his love be That though each of us in this room have lived a life of sin and greed and selfishness and cruelty and indulgence and pride and anger and hatred, Christ nevertheless comes into this world. He shows us what real love looks like in his life and in his death. He shows us what it means to have victory over sin and his resurrection. And now he freely offers himself to us, to every person in this room who is willing to recognize how desperate they are. He will make us new. He came into the world not so that moral and righteous do-gooders could be made even gooder, but so that sinners could be made right with their God. And know how deeply loved they are by him. We could go on and on. All of that from one simple question. Can I eat this chunk of meat, Paul? But wait, there's more. Because it isn't about the idols and the idol feasts. It's about glorifying God. And Paul's closing argument now. In chapter 10, verse 23 to 11, 1. He deals with this kind of second situation where he keeps on pressing this same kind of guiding rules and principles. What about the meat that's bought in the marketplace? Okay, I won't go to the the temples, I won't go participate, but what about the meat that I can buy? And that's the issue that we know Paul is dealing with. He says so in verse 25, when you go to someone's house and this meat that's been bought in the marketplace. And so now he's kind of rehearsing the same kind of wisdom, the same rules, the same principles of how, what it means to live a life that is pleasing and glorifying 
to God. In verse 23, Paul quotes this popular philosophical saying of his day. He actually said this in chapter 6, verse 12. If you remember, chapter 6, verse 12, Paul said, All things are lawful for me, but not all things are helpful. All things are lawful, but I will not be dominated by anything. That's the saying of his day that he uses. But now what does he do? He turns the phrase. Notice the difference. All things are lawful, but not all things are helpful. All things are lawful, but not all things build up. He continues that each person person should not seek his own good, but his neighbor's good first and foremost. That's the rule of love that we've been seeing Paul apply in these chapters. So while everything on earth belongs to the Lord, he's quoting Psalm 24, and everything may on on the one hand be safe for you to use and to consume, you're entitled to your views and opinions, but beware of acting in such a way that is harmful, that is rude, that is offensive, that's going to prevent people from hearing and receiving Christ in the gospel. Above all else, love and seek the good of your neighbor and not yourself. You know, here is a way that the Christian community really stands out or should stand out in our world today. Most people assume that the bonds of community and solidarity and unity ought to be formed on the basis of what we have in common with other people. But, of course, in our culture, with the rise of technology and biased media reporting and social media and all of that, we are becoming increasingly polarized, right? The age of outrage that we're all hearing about. And so what is happening now is we are creating a fast food version of what it means to be in community together. We don't bond so much anymore based on what we have in common, but we bond together based on who or what we hate or don't like. We may not have a lot in common, but at least we don't like the same people and we can complain about the same things. But you see, neither view of community is very helpful or healthy, is it? The first view, it it sounds nice, But it ends up being pretty exclusive, doesn't it? If you're not like us, go somewhere else. We like who we are. We like what we do. We like what we have in common. We don't want to mess up the status quo. We don't want to change. The second view, it sounds horrible because it is horrible. And yet, it's probably more common in practice today than the first view is. Such hatred and outrage that we see today. It makes us cynical, negative, hopeless, with a bleak outlook for the future. But the Christian community neither bonds on our interests or our personalities that we have in common, nor do we bond against our common enemy and based on our hatred or dislike for something or someone. Our bond and our unity comes from the love with which we have been loved. That is the strength of our bond. 
And when that kind of love transforms a group of people, then we ought not to be exclusive and distant, but open and inviting. Nor should we be cold and cynical, but warm and hopeful. Now here's where it gets really interesting for us. Verse 31. What a great verse. Half of it is printed on our sign outside when you come in. What a great verse. Whether you eat or drink, whatever you do, do it all to the glory of God. It's a verse many of us probably know by heart. Thank you, Westminster Catechism. We love that around here. We love this verse. We champion it. Whatever you do, do it all to the glory of God. But let us be careful with our application of it. I've noticed what tends to happen in many of our lives and in our churches is that we limit the application of this verse. So often we either make it kind of about knowledge acquisition to glorify God means to know all the right theological terms. Or maybe we make it about personal piety and practice and holiness. Make sure you're praying enough, reading your Bible, having your quiet time, going to church. That's how you glorify God. And that's true. Okay, nobody misquote me. All of those things are true. You should still read your Bible, okay? You should still pray. Come to church. There are essential ways for us to glorify God. But let us not miss what is right in front of us in this passage. In the immediate context, what is Paul referring to when he says, whether you eat or drink, do it all to the glory of God? A life that is expressed in love and mercy. Verse 23, seeking the good of your neighbor above yourself. Verse 24, protecting the conscience of others. Verse 29, giving no offense to others. Verse 32, seeking the advantage of others. Verse 33. It's using our lives, everything that we do, whether it's growing our minds and our knowledge, yes, our personal holiness, yes, and also the love expressed in our relationships with other people. Our friendships and our relationships, these two give glory to God. But is this kind of love really possible? Is this kind of love really possible? Is it, is it possible to please everyone in everything? To seek the advantage of everyone else above my own? No. No, I suppose it's not. Because to live in a way that pleases the Jews is to, uh, to displease the Greeks, right? If I'm going to please the Greeks, I'm going to end up displeasing the Jews. If I want to please one group of people, I'm going to offend somebody else. No, no. I suppose the only way for us to accommodate ourselves to the standards of different socio-cultural, economic groups of people, maybe it's just, it's just best to be separate. You know, maybe it's just for the best. 
After all, living and serving with people who are so different from me, they're different from me in age and background, it's just too hard. People today, they're so angry at each other, and it just makes me uncomfortable to talk to them. Besides, our our society, we're so individualistic. How could we possibly overcome the rule of individualism with with a rule of love? How could we do that? Why not? Why not just go along with it? I mean, yes, I'm lonely, you know. Yes, I know we're all lonely and we don't have a community, but at least I get to be in control. No, maybe it's just for the best to stay separate. Unless, unless there was a group of people It wouldn't have to be a very big group of people. It could start very small, maybe just a few hundred, who came together not because of what they had in common, but because of how deeply they knew they had been loved. They would have to be a group of people that knew, despite their differences, they had experienced an amazing kind of love, a love that had to come from outside of themselves. No, a self-love will not do. This love would have to come from one and the same person such that these people might actually be crazy enough to call each other family. The difficulty, of course, would be that they would have to realize that as mean and as cruel and as selfish and as irritable as they are, that someone else actually loved them enough to do anything for them, even if it meant dying. It would be humbling to be sure. After all, who among us wants to admit the faults of our hearts? Who wants to lay ourselves bare so that others would know how deep our sin really goes? It's a crazy idea, I know. But it just might be crazy enough to work. After all, such a group of people, having been so loved might just be moved to love others in a way that would make the watching world's jaw drop. And perhaps this is exactly Paul's point. For when he closes this section by exhorting his audience, be imitators of me as I am of Christ, he is reminding us of exactly the kind of astounding love that Christ has shown to us. For just as we have seen Paul abandon his rights, his preferences, his habits, his language, his freedoms for others, he points us to Christ. The eternal Son of God who, though he was in the form of God, did not count equality with God a thing to be grasped, but humbled himself, humbled himself so low to the dust, seeking our advantage above his own, taking on all the hurt and pain for our sin so that we could be made right with God. Many of you know that my wife and I are huge fans of This Is Us, the television show. I think it's been about 10 months since my last This Is Us illustration, so I think I'm in the the clear to use it again. And I'm not going to ruin a major plot point, but I will, if you're not cut up, I will inform you of what happened this past week. One of the heroes of the show, Jack Pearson, the dad, this extraordinary dad, 
right? Who you just, you just, I want to be, you know, like Jack when I grow up, when you see him. And how he loves his family and sacrifices himself for his family. They do, they do a sort of a prequel episode, if you will, to show how Jack became Jack. And he served in the Vietnam War. And what you see, though, throughout the episode is he grows up with this younger brother of his, and his name I can't remember. But what you see instilled in him as he's growing up is that it is the job of the older brother to take care of the younger brother. So his whole life he grows up caring for his younger brother. Well, the draft comes along. Jack is disqualified from the draft because of a heart condition. But his brother is not. And his brother's number gets called. And so now, for the first time in his life, Jack cannot protect his younger brother. His younger brother gets sent off to war. And his family receives a letter from his younger brother that says he'd been Article 15 He'd been disqualified from service because he had put himself and others in harm's way. And so Jack goes to his doctor. He says, Doc, I know I have this heart condition, but I have to go. I have to go. I have to go and make sure my brother is okay. I have to go and bring my brother home. And when we see stories like that, an example, this older brother, so he takes on this heart condition, he puts himself in harm's way, he gets trained to be an army officer, gets sent overseas, and he seeks out his brother until he finds him. We look at that and we say, that's an insane story of love. And deep down, we all know we want to be recipients of such love, don't we? We know we want it. But I think the difficulty for most of us is not admitting that we want to be loved. It is seeing ourselves as someone who is deserving of such love. Deep down, we know I've done nothing to deserve that kind of love. In fact, quite the opposite. I'm not a lovable person at all. I'm a burden. I've done great harm. I'm nothing special. Who really, if they knew me, could love me. And this is exactly what makes the love of God in Jesus Christ so incredible. Because we don't deserve it. We've caused great harm to ourselves and others. Like the younger brother, we've disqualified ourselves from being loved. And yet Christ still says, I must go after them. I love them too much to let them go, and I must bring them home. This table set before us is a reminder of how deep Christ's love goes for us. The bread that is broken is a reminder that there was a real body that was broken for our sake. The cup that we drink is a reminder of the real blood that was shed for the forgiveness of our sins. This meal that is set for us to dine at is a table of love. And the invitation is open for all those who have trusted Christ for the forgiveness of their sins and so now desire to glorify God with their lives, 
And so as the bread and the cup come to you, please take and eat and be reminded of Christ's love for you. But if you're here this morning and you have not turned to Christ in faith for the forgiveness of your sins, we're glad that you're here. It's a great place for you to be to ask questions about Jesus, to feel the expressions of a community of people who are saying to each other, be imitators of me as I imitate Christ. But we would ask you not to take of the bread and the juice as it comes to you this morning. And that's not because we're trying to be exclusive in any way, but it's because apart from faith, this is just a cracker and a small cup of juice to you. Instead, we would ask you to consider Jesus who traveled an infinitely great distance to show you his love and to bring you home. Not because you deserved it, but because his love is infinitely great. He offers himself freely to you if you will take. Let's pray together. Father, we thank you for your word and we ask that you would transform us this morning personally and communally that we would be a people who grow more and more in our love for one another. What a great gift your love is to us, Father. Meet us now as we come and we sit at your table and dine with Christ who gave himself for us. We thank you, Lord. We pray this in Christ's name. Amen.